0: when we bring to bear the the complementary skill sets and kind of that that three-legged stool of user experience design that is balanced on legs of content strategy, design, and information architecture to focus on what these experiences are about, the content that best supports them, that that best teaches our users or supports their emotional or educational needs when they're trying to accomplish something, what that content needs to look like, how we organize it. Because I think when you take away one of those legs, the experience falls down. It falls down for certainly the team that is trying to, to, to try to bring it to life. It falls down for the client and it definitely falls down for our audiences, because when we create without thinking, what we need to communicate, where it's coming from, who's going to be creating those assets, how are we going to maintain them over time? Those experiences become, at best, unsustainable, and at worst, meaningless or
1: uncommunicative. Hi everyone, welcome to Design Roads, where we explore why, how, and what design and designers are going forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and innovative creators on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and also make a positive impact in the world. In this episode, I chat with Margot Blumstein, who is the author of Trustworthy and a content strategist and founder of Appropriate Inc. Margot has a long history in working with designers and product managers on content strategy. Trust is becoming an ever-increasing topic in the world of digital products, so we touch base on how you can make sure the content design creates actual trust and how do you measure the impact of content strategy and also how the world of content creation is actually changing. As designers working in any kind of digital experience that leads to conversion, sales and for example an e-commerce setup, that becomes very important how you actually integrate that content because it's a vehicle for that conversion. Very often. On the other side, if you don't work with actual content integration in digital experiences, it's still very important because in the end, content is what's going to be the vehicle for the actual presentation communication of your product design. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, I'm here with Margot Blustein. Thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be joining you
1: so we're going to talk about content strategy today i actually super excited to talk about that to talk about trust to talk about the interlinkage between content strategy and also experiences of products and how it all plays together and i speaking specifically the time we are right now i think the topic of trust becomes increasingly important as we uh, i think are in a knowledge economy basically and i think information is coming from a lot of different sources and some of the people even question if these sources are still true and you know there are even topics that are emerging where you can't even distinguish distinct if, if it's actually real or not if you're looking at topics like deep fakes etc so i think moving forward i think there's going to be an increasing important topic and uh, specifically in the digital digital area so i'm looking forward to to learn from you in the episode i think what would be really great for the audience would be if you could just give them a uh, high level overview about uh, your journey coming from more of a design, communication design background and moving towards content strategy. I think that's quite interesting to set some context.
0: Sure. Um, well, as you said, my background is in design. I have a BFA in communication design. so. Well, I don't, I'm not the person doing the design work on most projects nowadays, I do think that that background gives me a, a good opportunity and good vocabulary and maybe set of expectations to bring into conversations where I am partnering with, with designers and, and mentoring designers and empathizing with, with designers on our teams. I've been working in content strategy for a little bit more than 20 years now, and my career has offered me opportunities to work on on large teams at at large consultancies like Sapient and uh, in small and mid-sized agencies where I was tasked with building up the content strategy team and practices in kind of the the early 2000s when it was still more of a, a blossoming, burgeoning industry and field. And then over the past decade or so, as I've been out on my own, leading Appropriate Inc., my focus has been more on how content strategy has continued to grow as a as a complement, as kind of maybe more the the strategic and theoretical complement to content marketing, and. Uh, as well as, as content design and UX writing, have continued to grow and expand as, as related fields. My focus has really been on brand-driven content strategy and how organizations can clarify their communication goals, develop a hierarchy of communication goals through their message architecture, and then use that understanding to inform their content types, their content model, editorial style and tone, all of those types of issues. And then over the past several years, my focus within content and design has really been on issues around trust, how we use content, how through the designed experience, we can renew the trust of our audiences, empower our users, maybe even teach them to better trust their own instincts, their ability to make good decisions and to look at then what role organizations and brands and businesses play in forging that sense of trust and building it back up. Because that's what I think is most important for, certainly for designers to focus on right now. I think that is the most important work that we can be doing. And I also think that that's really the biggest role, the biggest responsibility, maybe also the biggest opportunity for businesses right now is to look at how we can better empower our audiences, how we can teach them to better trust themselves, renew trust in the the world and organizations around them. Because I think that's how we best move our society forward.
1: Yeah, totally makes sense. And uh, thanks for that, all of you. I think, you know, we have a lot of people in the audience who are working as designers. And so they may wonder, okay, what is the relationship between um, design, user experience design, product design, for example, and sort of the everyday design topics and content strategy. I think there's quite a big overlap. I think maybe you can talk a little bit about how your collaboration with designers plays out. How is the collaboration looking like on the project and how do you divide tasks and uh, how do you leverage the different skills?
0: How do we leverage the different skills, kind of within the the design? The project, class? you know, I feel like the the kind of thinking around a a diverse, complementary design team that I think we started to see emerge within consulting, uh, within many agencies, even twenty years ago. I think a lot of that still applies today. I think our our projects. Run best, we best serve our clients and we best serve their users, their audiences. When we bring to bear the complementary skill sets and kind of that, that three legged stool of user experience design that is balanced on legs of content strategy, design, and information architecture texture, to focus on what these experiences are about, the content that best supports them, that, that best teaches our users or supports their emotional or educational needs when they're trying to accomplish something, what that content needs to look like, how we organize it. Because I think when you take away one of those legs, the experience falls down. It falls down for certainly the team that is trying to to, to try to bring it to life, it falls down for the client and it definitely falls down for our audiences because when we create without thinking what we need to communicate, where it's coming from, who's going to be creating those assets, how are we going to maintain them over time, those experiences become at best unsustainable and at worst meaningless or uncommunicative. When we when we forget to think about how this whole experience needs to work best for our users, how we best meet their needs through through user research and and considering how they're going to access information, then these experiences become unusable. And then again, we're kind of left feeling like, well, what was the point? And I think when we when we come together around projects, kind of considering those different aspects, that's when we create the strongest most sustainable, consistent, cohesive, and appropriate experiences. And I think that's what everyone on the team seeks to find. And our users don't, they they don't articulate, they sh- they shouldn't have to articulate it. But I think that's oftentimes what they're looking for too. I mean, I think as as consumers, we've all experienced what it's like to maybe interact with a brand and Find one kind of experience when we're talking with them, maybe over Twitter and then another one we're calling for customer service help, and maybe seeing that the messaging on the website isn't at all like what we've been hearing in the in-store experience. and that's that's bad. It's frustrating. those are the those are the kind of interactions that drive people to competitors instead. and and I think that when we are able to Come together collaboratively around the needs of our users and the needs of our organizations. That's what does best by all of them. Not to say that every team needs different people in each of those roles, because sometimes you're the UX team of one, and you need to bring to bear all those different perspectives. But I do think that when we when we find that balance, that's what does best by people and our projects.
1: Makes sense. Um- could you maybe share one project that you have been working with or one of your f- favorite projects maybe where you really had the feeling or uh, where it was really clear to you that you can drive a lot of impact by a great collaboration between the design team and maybe the content strategy team? And maybe you can maybe give an, a concrete example like how that, what were the different aspects and pick some, some cr- concrete examples there.
0: Sure. I mean I can't I can't name names unfortunately but I think as is often the case but it doesn't mean it's not an experience that I hope that that everyone listening can can relate to or or one day find on a project. I recently wrapped up a project with a, a large B2B marketing organization and I was part of a wonderful team where there was strong very communicative creative direction the designers on the project worked well with with the folks like me that were focusing on content strategy we were all working in partnership around the the organization of information and the overall information architecture and there was other another strong component on the project that i think we oftentimes forget and it has become increasingly important i would say over certainly over my career over the past 20 years and that's the role of the client and i've found that the best projects in which I've been involved, and this has definitely increased over the past several years, are the projects where we're able to bring in our key client stakeholders. Maybe they're able to play a creative role on the team or work with them closely to, to help facilitate their thinking, to, to help bring out their thinking and their guidance. Because on every project, It's our clients who know the nature of their business best. In some cases, they may know their their audience best. They definitely know their audience's history with the brand best. And I think that when we're able to work in good, tight partnership with them, maybe through collaborative exercises along the way. On this project, as well as on several others over the past few years, I've really changed my approach to developing things like editorial style guidelines. I think my approach with many with many of the steps of content strategy, many of the activities and conversations along the way, have always been just that. They've been conversations. They've been very collaborative. It isn't just a case of me collecting information, going off, doing work, and then presenting it back to the client, because invariably, you see how some things can be lost in translation. And I think the the approach that I've always taken to message architecture speaks to that, where... I always feel like it's my clients that are doing the work of articulating their communication goals. My role is simply to to facilitate how they do that and ensure that they're able to communicate it in a way that I can then use that guidance for my subsequent work and everyone else on the team can also use it as well. So I'm there as kind of a, a facilitator, drawing in My years of experience, best practices in the industry, what I know other people on the team are going to need from from this kind of process. And that's how I get them to work together to put together a message architecture. And with editorial style guidelines, this very tactical tool that aids content design, aids content strategy. It's going to aid their copywriting moving forward. It oftentimes has an impact on design and information architecture and kind of the broader user experience. This very tactical tool, it used to be that I would kind of collect my information for what needed to be in there, what sort of guidance around style and tone and maybe best practices around certain content types I would collect that, write up these guidelines, deliver them to my client, kind of with a bow around them. And then we would oftentimes do training with maybe some of their internal copywriters, maybe some of the freelancers they worked with, and that would be it. And sometimes those guidelines were, were well adopted and, and my client could run with them. But I didn't always know that that was the case. I knew that sometimes that wasn't the case. And over the past several years, I've taken more of an approach that is more collaborative. And I think on this recent project, we definitely think everyone on the the agency side sort of saw the value of what happens when a client is part of a very collaborative process and when we have more working sessions than presentations. And I think with this particular part of the project, that's exactly what happened. So rather than kind of doing my research, writing up the thing, presenting it back to them is like, here it is. Instead, I worked closely with them to first put together a workshop to discuss all the different topics that I wanted to make sure an editorial style guide would comprise. Then we met and kind of worked through each of those so that I could hear from them, like, in what cases were they like, we have to use title case because of this sort of history or these sort of issues in in past, um, maybe press releases and whatnot, or why in some cases we needed to follow AP style versus Chicago manual of style, or why in some cases they wanted to really hew closely to, to maybe Google's editorial style guidelines or MailChimp's voice and tone guidelines. So I worked with them to kind of hear the history, hear the angst, hear their concerns. And that meant that they knew I was hearing their concerns so that everybody in the room could also hear that I was hearing their different points of view. So then when I went back to kind of write up this compilation of our conclusions, there were no surprises in it. I wasn't delivering it to them and saying, here, now go run with it. Instead, I was bringing it back to them and saying, not here's what I created, but here's what we created together. So by even that switch in pronouns of going from I to we, they were already better set up to adopt it they were already more inclined to evangelize it within their larger marketing organization. So I feel good that our time together and the budget on it and everything that the team had invested in it in terms of of their creative ideas, it wasn't going to be wasted and it was going to be sustainable. And I think that's what we see when we work more collaboratively within our teams and within teams that include our clients, that the work we do together is so much more sustainable, so much more likely to be adopted and championed within the organization. And I think at the end of the day, that's certainly what our clients want. They don't want to waste budget either. They don't want to waste ego and reputation on bringing in teams whose work falls flat. And I think most people that work in consultancies, in agencies, as well as internal marketing organizations, we want to see that our work lives on long after the projects on which we complete
1: it. I think it's very interesting You use the term sustainable when it comes to, uh, you know, how much basically you take an idea gets been taken forward after that project or basically after the scope is done. And I think... It's actually a topic also coming up in a, in a past episode is that obviously this is a challenge right from the outside. If you work with a, a, a large manufacturer, a large organization, basically from the outside, uh, very often things get loose, get lost in transition. And obviously you want to make sure that uh, the innovation, your concepts, they survive and basically can, uh, take them forward. And there are a couple of strategies in how to ensure that besides you know, stakeholder involvement, making sure you talk to the right people, inviting people. And make sure you don't have the sort of not invent the tear syndrome where basically the people that, you know, are forced to take something forward where they're not feeling like they're the innovator or the creator of it. And I think with the aspect that you pointed out using the term uh, we instead of me, obviously this plays into that. And I really like that you you pointed out that it's actually more sustainable as well because actually there, there should be that interest even from the uh, partner side basically to um, uh, to push that so i think very interesting talking about the the relationship uh, between user experience and content design so there's one project that comes into my mind where i had the chance to work on a project that was sort of in the intersection but i worked from the user experience user interface design basically with content strategy, content management, content design in a certain degree. But obviously from the content strategy side, there was a way bigger overview in terms of like what's the overall content map basically, what are the different types of content we have, what's the idea behind it, what is the different strategy. And then we actually from the user experience side as we were developing this product, we had to see what content, what of the different content verticals actually is appropriate for this product that we're working on. And basically, so it was really a dialogue between content and design, if you want to say so, or content strategy or content management and product design, because you know not every type of content would fit into the product, right? So we could we could try to force a podcast into it, or we can try to force a video content into it. May be because of you know business reason, but it doesn't just fit into the product experience. I think that it needs to be an open dialogue. and I think you can see this with a lot of specifically e commerce. it's a big e commerce trend, obviously. If you look at how to you know talk uh, create a narrative around the products and services that you offer, And uh, there is obviously inter interlinkage between story content and then basically the e-commerce side so i think content i think overall i think you can see it more and more digital products because i think it's a more soft entry point for as a funnel also for example for an e-commerce experience or some kind of conversion so um, i think that's also interesting um, you know that content is getting more popular as a as a funnel as well and i think more and more companies try to pick it
0: up right I mean, i think like what that's to me, that is one of the big challenges around content marketing, that we do see the value of using content, as you said, as a funnel to, to bring more people into organizations, to bring more people into e-commerce sites, hopefully to teach more people to be smarter consumers too, to, to help them better help themselves as they're deciding what to buy or to choose where from where to buy it. I think the challenge around that, as you described, is that not all content types are right for all brands for many reasons. And one of them is is around, well, what is sustainable? And if we say that maybe that video clips about products are the ideal way to bring people into into an e-commerce site so that they can see lots of video reviews and whatnot, that's great. If, if you're part of a marketing team that is adept at creating video content, that has room in the editorial calendar to continue creating it and keeping those videos up to date, that that knows how to tag them so that they can be easily accessed and repurposed across the maybe across like the central web presence and then throughout the the organization's online ecosystem but if any of those pieces is missing or even if just there's no budget to keep creating video content it's dangerous to start going down that route because that's what leads people to think, oh, this content is incomplete, or yeah, they have video content, but it's really woefully out of date, or it's really not on brand, not the right tone of voice. And those are the things that chip away at brand integrity and brand consistency. And I think the the other issue around not all content types being right for all brands is that I think it was the the Austrian psychotherapist, Paul Witzlawick, that said you can't not communicate. And our very choice of content types communicates a lot around our brands. If we want to communicate that a brand is maybe very, very rigorous and detailed in its research and very erudite and studious, maybe we shouldn't be blogging about our research. Maybe instead we we should be releasing more white papers or releasing more information in the form of infographics that that pull people back then to read the long form copy. Or if a brand wants to communicate that it is fun and hip and and very youthful and, and in touch, maybe we should be throwing a lot more budget into social media where we can maintain A more responsive dialogue with our audiences but it goes back to the idea that can't be everywhere all the time even the largest marketing organizations can't be in all of the 100 plus channels that the content marketing institute describes as possible venues for content marketing can't do all of it all the time because there are opportunity costs associated with that work if you're investing all of your creative resources your time and budget in creativity and energy from your team in one channel, you may not always be able to repurpose it for other channels. And I think that those are very real concerns for organizations because they do come back to having a monetary impact in brands as well. When people are creating content and then see that the organization no longer supports it or it falls by the wayside or that blog that you launched after six months, everybody's abandoned it. That's what leads people to, to start to think, maybe I'm not really having an impact here. Maybe I wanna look elsewhere. Maybe I wanna start dusting off my resume. And those choices have very real financial consequences in organizations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And
1: maybe just to give uh, the audience maybe an additional aspect where I think content strategy slash content management and user experience design uh, plays together is obviously you know also that if you, for example, create the content or try to integrate content into a digital product, you obviously have a CMS system, right? So you have a sort of content management system in the background that sort of manages that. And I think one of the additional challenges, specifically we, we talk about an app, for example, where the real estate of the screen is very limited, you are going to approach that differently towards a website where you can maybe show more content. And that, that plays into factors like how much, text do we show how much uh, letters do we have for the headline what's the length of the video of the autoplay and what do we show basically after user clicks on it so what i again to the the topic of interplay between content to content strategy and user experience design is that the for example when uh, this project i was explaining the cms was kind of shaped together where it was sort of a back and forth a dialogue between what makes sense on the product and what do we have from the content strategy because the content strategy looks at all of the different touch points as a user experience designer you mostly work on one product so you're just one of the touch points of an overall content strategy right a content strategy looks and please correct me if i'm wrong here looks at a lot of different touch points and looks look at how the the brand is behaving uh, across touch points and it's not focusing on the touch points, obviously taking con- touch points into consideration but that's sort of a, a second step when it comes to the implementation of content strategy where you look into Okay, like how do we actually integrate it? How does the C- how's the CMS set up? Um, um, and 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 I think there the interrelation between user experience design and content strategy I think comes together, where I think even also from a design side you can sort of influence a little bit how the content strategy gets applied basically in the end or gets implemented, and I think it needs empathy from both sides I feel like and another challenge I feel is the topic of usability because. Specifically, if we talk about, I think with, when it, when it comes to content strategy, sometimes it's, it's a lot about values, it's a lot about a narrative and a message. And sometimes this can conflict with a very clear usability you maybe need on a set of digital product. Uh, let's say you use sort of more vague descriptions maybe that work very well on the website or where people have more time to kind of follow the narrative and, and follow the story. While well, maybe on a digital product, you just need to have a more more clear naming maybe to make clear to the user what they actually mean. You know, I think there's it's almost a different way to kind of test these things between maybe a digital product versus content. Because on content, you can look a lot on analytics and obviously you can test out different things. And I actually would, would really like to learn how you do the the, the testing of content strategy. And how do you do basically tests? But for example, on a on a user experience side, you you have to consider other aspects like obviously usability, but also user research, etc. And I'm wondering how much do you think maybe apply in a content strategy process when it comes to the validation maybe of of content strategy.
0: Well, I think I, I just want to go back to some of the earlier points that you were making there too. I think as far as the sort of opportunity and maybe liberties that we can take between different platforms, whether it's engaging with a user through through an app and that kind of user experience or on a website. I know you said that, you know, sometimes you can be more vague on a website because there's more time for a story to evolve. I think we do have opportunities like that. However, I don't think there's ever a time to sacrifice clarity with, with our audiences because whether they're meeting us first on Twitter or first on Instagram or maybe first through through the, the app, and the app is driving a portion of them maybe back to the website, or vice versa, that our website is then driving people to download the app. I think every step of the way, we still need to be consistent, not necessarily monolithic, but consistent with the qualities that we communicate about the brand, consistent with, with what we're offering people, so that if that is the only opportunity we ever get with them, They still know what the brand is offering them, what they could have done there, what they are able to do there. And I think that the best experiences that are truly multi-channel or omni-channel experiences that allow and support users to move across them are consistent and cohesive. So we're able to build a story that evolves as they move among those different platforms. That is what has always worked best going back hundred plus years in the history of retail. That is what has always worked best for retailers that move among, that have the opportunity to engage customers among a print catalog, uh, then moving into an in-store experience, maybe with customer service on the phone, when we're able to support them effectively and they know that no matter how they engage with the brand, no matter how they engage with us, whether it's through how something looks, the the interface of a product, what they're reading, what we sound like, that they're always getting the same organization. That kind of consistency matters. But it's hard, especially when our own organizations are siloed and different people or teams are responsible for those different channels. But to your point, that's why I think it makes the most sense when you are able to say, here's our organizational content strategy. Now, here's how we're going to pull different levers and emphasize maybe different points in it within those different channels or across those different platforms, because necessarily we will need to kind of maybe focus on, on certain different points there. But I think when we're able to let it all kind of go back up to an overriding message architecture, that's when our organizations and the people in those different silos have the best sense that... They know kind of the vision and they know what to do moving forward. They also know how to reach out to each other to p- apply the knowledge that is evolving within the organization, to, to not cannibalize each other's efforts or each different team's efforts, but to create something that comprehensively is better for the organization and better for our audiences.
1: Yeah, Totally agree. And uh, I think, yeah, I think totally agreeing also to the topic that you were saying, yeah, obviously there needs to be a lot of consistency. And I think really good brands are really good at that. I think what I just wanted to point out as well is that, you know, it's challenging on the different touch points because sometimes the requirements can be different between different, different, different touch points, right?
0: And I think that's why it's important to also have good, not just good, courageous organizational leadership that's able to say, Here are our goals. Here's our organizational vision so that there is more freedom and comfort and vulnerability with those different platforms than saying, well, here's how we maybe need to differ. What do we need to discuss if those differences are big or if our goals are slightly different? How can they still complement each other? And that type of courage can be tough to find in some organizations, in some C-suites. It can be tough to, to demand that type of courage and vision from the CMO, from the chief product officer, from the chief creative officer. But I think that's also what designers and marketers and copywriters and content strategists and product owners, that is, those are the things to which we need to hold organizational leadership accountable. That's what they owe the people on their teams. Because that's that kind of cohesion and consistency is what we owe our users as well.
1: Um, When we talk about content, obviously content is changing a lot. If you look at modern day, you know, social media platforms, obviously um, there are certain new contents coming all the time. You have, you know, products like Clubhouse, for example, that are pushing audio so I think the content is changing a lot and, you know, many people, you know, focus these days, many companies focus on content creators. I think that's a big trend, but it's also the aspect of algorithm that's, you know, gets very important if you see at, you know, how TikTok works or Instagram works when it comes to algorithm how that influence content creation, even where people are creating content because the algorithm is promoting it today and maybe tomorrow they're creating different content because algorithm promotes a different type of content tomorrow uh, down to how you edit content and i think so it becomes a very fast business you could say so you constantly have to basically look out how things are changing could you maybe talk to that how what's your feeling basically looking at that the general transformation how content is uh, is working these days and you know where do you see it going
0: quantity matters but quality matters more and i think that that's a a trend and a realization that we've seen within the content marketing discipline. I think some of the older, earlier thinking in content marketing was to create a lot, get a lot out there, be writing a lot, be blogging a lot, be constantly publishing. The problem with constantly publishing is that it is irresponsible to not think about, well, how are you constantly then having to maintain that content? If you're publishing on social media, how are you maintaining the conversation around that content when people are engaging with it? How are you accountable to your audience? And we know that social media isn't free. It's a different kind of expensive that still demands your time and attention and care. And to abdicate that responsibility causes your brand to lose value, to lose relevance. And and certainly nobody wants that. Nobody in the business of content creation wants their brand to become irrelevant. But that's why I feel that the thinking in content marketing, I'm happy to say, has evolved. That it isn't just about creating a lot, getting a lot out there but also if you're going to be the the person in the arena who's engaging with with the audience, whose face is marred by kind of the the dust and blood and sweat of, uh, of our industry, the virtual dust and blood and sweat, that you're accountable to the quality of your work as well. And by that, I mean, if you're creating content, ensure that it is appropriate to the needs of your brand. That goes back to your communication goals and your message architecture. If you don't know what you're trying to communicate, stop. Because if you don't know what you're trying to communicate, how are you going to know if it's any good or simply just published? Like, yay, the site went live. The the blog post went live. But is it good? Does it ladder back to your communication goals? Does it ladder back to your editorial calendar? And if it doesn't, we need to ask, well, why are we going down those paths? Why are we wasting people's creative energy and time and budget, if we're just simply trying to create more for for TikTok or Clubhouse or or any other platform. But I think when we are able to look and say that our content is appropriate for our communication goals, it's appropriate for the platforms on which we're creating it. It's appropriate for the needs of our audiences on those different platforms. Then and only then can we say, okay, let's make more of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and so. How do you then validate content? So let's say we would have a team here that listens to the podcast that have a, has created a content strategy where they think that's going to be an amazing content series. They have a lot of spend a lot of time strategizing it, creating it, designing it. Now they want to test it if it's correct, and maybe they even have. I mean, potentially, I think you tell me, but I think the best way would have been to already have tested it if they have uh, now come up with it. But like, so how do they validate if the strategy holds true?
0: Sure. I mean, I think they can definitely test along the way, test kind of incrementally to see like, are are they using language and jargon that mirrors the, the kind of language that their audience would be using, maybe even in searching for it. That's something that they can get at by looking at their own search analytics. They can also test, are they using the right tone? Are they using, are they going to the right level of detail to support their users' needs? Are they even publishing enough? Are they giving people the amount of information they need? And I think that's kind of the core question that every organization needs to ask. Whether you are engaging an outside copywriter, whether you're engaging an outside social media agency, or you're an internal marketing department, we need to reckon with this fact that more content is not always better content. When we're trying to determine what is the right amount of content to offer our audiences, you know you've offered them enough when they can make good decisions based on it. And and this is Mm -hmm. important, but they can make good decisions and feel good about the decisions they make. And that is not some sort of fluffy thing that we cannot measure, because we can and we do all the time. When you look at like on e-commerce sites, the rate of product returns, When returns are low, it means that people have purchased products, get them, and still feel good about the decision to have purchased them. When the rate of product returns are high, it's because, well, they needed to maybe kind of showroom it in their house. They needed to to maybe go back and forth, or they got something and then said, ugh, I wish I hadn't. I need to make a different decision, so I'm going to send it back. But looking at things like the rate of product returns, the listening in on customer support calls and the types of information people are looking for, that tells us a lot about if people are feeling good with the decisions they're making based on the content we create. Because when people can take in enough information To make good decisions, that's a sign of their confidence, that they feel not just confident in the brand that is offering them enough information, but more importantly, confident in themselves, that they've gained enough knowledge. And it can be maybe on a big ticket purchase. It might be on, on something that is far more esoteric. Maybe it's around how they want to vote, or a very complex emotional decision, or maybe an emotionally fraught financial decision. And when we look at how people are making those decisions, in many cases, it goes back to the content that we're offering them. This is a lot of what I'm I'm getting at in in Trustworthy, the, the book that came out in March, where I look at how content and design support people's ability to trust, not just in the organizations around them or where they choose to shop or where they choose to eat, but also in themselves. And I think the right amount of content That varies for every audience, every brand, every industry. But we know we've offered them enough content when they're able to make those decisions and then indicate their confidence in those decisions. When they can make good decisions and feel good about the decisions they make, that's how we maintain a positive user experience.
1: I mean, the topic you mentioned regarding the quality versus quantity is interesting. At the same time, it's also slightly sometimes a bit we are a little bit forced sometimes there as well because if you think about how algorithms work you know they ask you to post x times per day in order to push you you know so there is a lot of framework and a lot of basically sort of, I would not say decisions, but let's say like recommendations come basically from the outside You know they're basically rules that are set in place that can change any day. And they're basically going to, you know, decide and like how many views you get. And so I think that's a challenge, right? Keeping up the quality, but then still playing in the rules or basically not playing in the rules maybe, but still having so great content that, you know, you don't maybe need to play in the rules. It's a high bar. potentially right but that's just a challenge a challenge i see because as a content creator you're not fully in control about the game about about the play field and how the how the rules are all the time specifically we're talking about social
0: and i think that in those in those kinds of situations we also need to ask do you want to do well to please the the TikTok algorithm Or do you want to do well to please your users and how much of their decision making will be based on on the kind of information they're getting on TikTok? And I think we also need to consider, do you want to win at TikTok or win at Clubhouse or do you want to win with your target audience? And and some of that goes back to looking at the the broader ecosystem that they're using to, to kind of come into your funnel, to, to evaluate, to gain comfort, not just with your brand, but with their own knowledge, um, maybe coming from your brand or around your overall product space and so i think there's there's a lot of opportunity there to to kind of carve out your own playing field too
1: and i think before that you mentioned also something very interesting you gave two very concrete examples how do you measure the content strategy right you said like one could be how many returns you get on your products because the better the the lower the returns the better the people are informed and the better the product experience aligns with the content that comes beforehand you mentioned also customer support basically so basically having low customer support Rates basically is an indication for a good content strategy, potentially. Are there any other KPIs a business should look at or a product team should look at to validate their content strategy?
0: I think, I mean, looking at some of the other different content types and topics that you're addressing, take a look at employee turnover. If people that are content creators are frequently leaving your organization, it may be because they feel like their content is not making a difference or that there's little support for kind of long-term initiatives there, that they're creating content. And then it's kind of falling by the wayside because your organization is sort of ping-ponging all over the place. I think it's also worthwhile looking at things like, the, in addition to employee retention, the hiring and recruitment funnel. If if your organization is trying to be a leader in in diversity and inclusion, and, and if you want to be an employer of choice in your region or in your industry, Take a look at how potential employees are evaluating your content. Are they, are they learning and then choosing to go elsewhere? Or are they learning and then keen on learning more that they want to keep going down that path? And I think those are those are both areas where maybe with any kind of KPI, some organizations look at those numbers and say, yeah, but every time it's a personal decision. If we're getting a lot of product returns, it it might just have to do with like product maybe QA or, or this product just didn't hit right. And it's easy to to write off many of our mistakes to other departments to, to blame others. But some of it also goes back to looking at what we ourselves can do to improve around communication, around content strategy, around, around offering a more cohesive, consistent, authentic, trustworthy experience to our audiences.
1: So I think What's also interesting is the aspect of trust. You have mentioned this now a couple of times, I think, in the uh, in the episode. And you wrote a book about it, Trustworthy, which I think, as a topic, I think is becoming more and more relevant, you know, considering the topics that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, you know, deep fakes, content being harder to validate, people really seeking trust, basically, in content. It's it has been even a topic on a political level, specifically in the US. So trust becoming increasingly important. So... Uh, What are your thoughts on trust and content and how can businesses and content creators make sure they're creating trustworthy content?
0: It's a complex issue, but I think it's exactly the issue that designers, writers, marketers, content creators of all stripes do need to prioritize. Because if we've lost our users' trust, any other efforts at, at marketing or engaging with them will fall flat. And that's what we've seen over the past few years, where, where sales cycles are taking longer. So many marketing messages are, are kind of falling by the wayside because across a broad variety of industries, I'd say across all industries, the problem that we saw in the political sphere is now much more widespread. Where people are being bombarded with information, only to to take kind of a, a cynical ear to it, to say, "I don't need to hear anymore. I know what I know. You're not going to affect my beliefs. And if it feels right, it is right. I don't need any more information." And that is a death knell for anybody working in user experience design, marketing. Trying to to communicate a message to an audience, whether it's through product interfaces, the physical design of products, any sort of website experiences. Because when people say, I'm good, I don't need any more information, they're walling themselves off from knowledge. And that's cynicism. It's not skepticism, which I think can be healthy. It's the skeptical mind that that teaches us to say, I'm not going to believe things just at face value. Let me keep doing research. Let me learn more and it's our job to make sure that there are good sources of information, high quality sources of information that people can tell are good quality available to our audiences so that they can continue to self-educate regardless of our industries and the organizations that are aware of that that see the need to empower their audiences those are the organizations that gain trust those are the organizations that, that gain mind share and attention from new consumers. And it's new consumers, new voters, readers, people, again, regardless of the industry. And the way that we can best earn their trust, it's kind of a, it's a three pillar framework. And, and this is a lot of what I talk about in Trustworthy As I was interviewing different organizations that have been able to navigate this era of heightening cynicism and look at how they can effectively smash cynicism. I was looking to see, well, what are the common things that that they can all offer? What are what are the traits and practices that they have in common in their content strategy efforts across their design teams that that any organization can emulate and. In the case studies and interviews that I conducted and the examples that I gathered, they kind of fall into a a three-part framework that focuses on voice, volume, and vulnerability. Voice refers to how we communicate visually as well as verbally with our audiences in a way that is consistent and cohesive and familiar. That if we're using jargon, we're using it to educate our audiences and to help them to become smarter so that they can feel more confident in their own knowledge. A uh, volume refers to, well, how much information do we need to offer our audiences? Again, visually as well as verbally. Do we need to offer them photo galleries with every product that include dozens and dozens of, of photos to our images need to be incredibly richly detailed to convey enough information? Or is it better for our diagrams, for for our photo galleries to be much simpler? Should Should all of our sites be much more clean-lined to convey enough information? And then how long should our blog posts be and our articles be? How frequently should we be tweeting? And and that all speaks to how much information our audiences need to make good decisions. And then, as you heard me say, feel good about the decisions they make to feel confident in themselves, as well as the brands that are helping them get there. And then the third section of the book focuses on vulnerability. So how we establish rapport by really showing the, the human side of our organizations. And this affects both how we make our values visible, how we, how we help individuals, whether they are potential customers or potential employees or, or the press, how we help them know who we are and how we are and what we value, what we stand for. But vulnerability also refers to what happens when our organizations mess up. Maybe when they've waded into a social issue and now need to wrangle with it themselves or or the CEO does something incredibly boneheaded, what we do then, how we tackle the issues around apology and accountability to, to demonstrate repentance with our audiences and maybe even bring our audiences closer. So how we can prototype in public to show them and share with them our brand stories of evolution and improvement. So I think between those three pillars of voice and volume and vulnerability, that's how our organizations best build trust. And addressing each of those pillars, that is the job of content creators. That is the job of designers, of user experience designers and product designers and product owners, because we do shape and inform so much of of our audience's understanding of the brands that we represent and their interaction with it, we hold the keys to really fine tuning those experiences.
1: Yeah, I think it's super interesting what you've been mentioning and how, you know, if, for example, like if a business does something wrong and, you know, they basically make it transparent and then kind of act on it uh, in the right way, this can also create trust. So yeah, I think I really like the the different topics that you mentioned. And I think to the first one that you have mentioned, I think it was very interesting to see in um, probably the last one and a half years, specifically also with COVID, how, you know, specifically platforms that have to deal with different contents have to navigate now to this time of, you know, misinformation. So, you know, for example, you have certain labels on content now to say like, "Hmm, this is content that is you know, talking about COVID here, you can actually see a more proper source on this. So, you know, by looking at basically different contents and then basically making sure there's no misinformation. But I see this as a big problem because there is obviously the platform algorithm that's one actor in the system, right? And they have a lot of influence and you need to orchestrate that experience. And then you have the people passively looking at the concept and then you have the active content creators. They have a content strategy even and, and the businesses and they're playing into the system but it's basically these three parties kind of playing together here and uh, as a uh, as a contributor and creator you're not always um, yeah fully in control because you know if i you know happen to look up a certain type of content on youtube all the time the information i'm getting i'm getting very biased so on a certain topic, because um, the algorithm sees I'm, co- I'm, I'm looking at that content, so I might be interested. So it feeds me more of that. So that's just an overall challenge. And, uh, but yeah, I think an exciting challenge also to, to work with uh, when it comes to content strategy so i think we needed to need to wrap it up unfortunately um, thank you so much for the time and i think we need to stop the recording here but thank you so much for sharing insight. i hope the audience learned quite a lot here yeah.
0: thank, thank you me. so much This was a lot of fun
1: all right that was the episode thank you so much for tuning in if you enjoyed the episode make sure you give it a thumbs up let me know in the comments by taking the post. what were really the biggest learnings for you in the episode i'm always super curious about that If the episode provides you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others, so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time. Cheers.